I once saw a patient who came to the emergency room with injuries that were clearly related to domestic violence. Uh, Instead of offering a compassionate ear and a blanket to cover her exposed body after an assault, her intake nurse rushed through a checklist intended to screen her for social needs. While facing the computer screen, the nurse asked the patient a series of sensitive questions, including one about whether she had experienced domestic violence. The patient, feeling put off by the nurse's impersonal manner, denied ever having experienced any abuse. In recent years, primary care providers like me have started to realize that we need to ask patients about all manner of topics. But these efforts have manifested themselves in a form of a rapid screen and refer approach. Ultimately, this well-intentioned but poorly executed system is not only ineffective, but also dehumanizing and even potentially harmful to patients. That was Sanjay Basu, a primary care provider, epidemiologist, and head of clinical at Waymark, a company dedicated to improving access and quality of care for people receiving Medicaid benefits. He was reading from his recent first opinion essay on screening systems intended to identify patient social needs and how they can fall short. I'll bring you our conversation about these screen and refer systems and a better approach after a quick break. I'm Jesse McWhorters, branded content editor for STAT. Recognizing the breadth and diversity of America's 53 million family caregivers, how can we better know and see these important unsung heroes? Lisa Wilson, head of caregiver advancement strategy and experience at United Healthcare, offers insights. Family caregivers are a cornerstone of our health system, but it can be challenging to support them in the moments that matter. United Healthcare is breaking down the barriers to identifying and engaging caregivers. For example, we're making it easy for caregivers to establish necessary HIPAA permissions and encouraging self-identification. The more we know about this population, the more we see them, especially early on in their caregiving journey, the better support we can provide. For more information, visit uhc.com caregiving. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Tori Bosch, editor of First Opinion. First Opinion is Stat's platform for interesting, illuminating, and provocative articles about the life sciences writ large, written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and more. Welcome, Sanjay. Thank you for having me. So I want to dive right in and first ask, um, what is a screen and refer system? You know, what is the ideal version? The screen and refer system follows from a really uh, kind idea. The idea is our patients are affected by social issues and we should not just be writing lab orders and prescriptions in our primary care practices, but also knowing, let's say, if I've prescribed a refrigerated medicine, does the patient actually have a refrigerator? Or if I'm telling the patient to go on a particular kind of healthy diet, can they actually afford fruits and vegetables and have access to a kitchen and know how to cook them? And so it stems from a good idea. Over the last few years, however, what we've noticed is that 
we've kind of lost the ultimate idea in how we are trying to address this problem. Many states have uh, forced community-based organizations to purchase and adopt software platforms that are quite expensive in order to allow hospitals and health systems to rapidly ask a series of questions about a patient's social need and generate automatic referrals to the food bank or the housing office and so on. And although that sounds efficient, it seems to have backfired uh, to a number of degrees. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, this is something that we all experience at the doctor now, right? Which is where the doctor or an assistant, a nurse, takes us through a series of questions and, you know, which can be fairly intimate uh, while they stare at a screen. But this is a little bit different, right, than just sort of filling out your electronic health record in that it's supposed to then kind of connect you to this outside system. You describe a few problems with how the system has been implemented, and so I'd like to take you through them individually. Um, the first problem that you write about is that it's uh, dehumanizing. I think the excerpt you read at the start of the episode gets to this, but can you tell us a little bit more about you know, what is so off-putting to patients about this process? Yes. One of the big research findings in this field of social determinants of health is that the issues that are being addressed are really sensitive. And not just sensitive, but require a in-depth, long-term relationship with a patient to really understand. So, for example, I saw a patient uh, earlier today who has alcohol dependence, and it, it led him to drop out of school and become unemployed and lose his housing. But to address all those issues, we have to kind of understand how those are all tied together, that uh, a bad experience uh, with discrimination in school led to using alcohol to kind of address depression, and that ultimately led to the homelessness and led to the unemployment um, and so it's kind of a situation where you need to know a person, need to know what their priorities are. It's not as simple as checking a box to solve some of these problems. He was rapidly screened and referred, uh, given a, a notice to go on a housing list and this list and that list. And then in going through the process to the office, he arrived at a waiting room where a bunch of other patients who had also gotten the same referral we're in that same waiting room, and they were all kind of what we call untriaged. Some of them were truly homeless. Others were just looking for other housing. Others needed home repairs, and it was kind of a mess. And the housing authority said, what happened? You know, we're supposed to be, like, organized, know who to do what intervention for. And what had happened was the local hospital had just implemented one of these screen and refer systems. They'd sent a couple thousand patients in a week over to this housing authority without coordinating very well with them. And the authority uh, didn't get new funding to address this issue. The hospital, a pretty big health system, got a major grant to implement this software. Uh, but the actual community-based organization solving the problem, not just screening for it, was kind of left without additional budget to deal with this burgeoning demand. And we call that sometimes the uh, wrong pocket problem in healthcare. I mean, and I understand why the system works the way it does, right? You know, these are sort of yes or no questions. Do you have a problem with something? But when you're the person being asked that, right, you, there's something so sort of um, 
there's something so reductive, right, about saying that you're someone who is dependent on alcohol rather than having that opportunity, right? So yeah, I can absolutely see how um, someone might just not answer correctly uh, after being asked a question in a way that doesn't feel connected to them, perhaps, right? I agree. And you know, there's a lot of work on making screening questions better, more valid, and so on. And that's that's reasonable. We have a lot of checklists in medicine. I understand the reason for it. The question is, do we leave the flexibility to our patients and to the providers to choose when to activate those? Uh, there was a recent study at a University of Michigan that indicated that all if you took all the screening recommendations that primary care providers in the United States are told to do, you end up requiring the primary care provider to have a little more than 24 hours in a day to get through all the screening questionnaires. So that, that's going to be challenging for us to, to get through. And it kind of relates to the idea that we assume that if we're going to fix a problem, a medical problem, a social problem, screening is the way to do it. It's a detection problem or a diagnosis problem. But a lot of the challenges in primary care are actually relationship and listening problems and trust problems. We can screen like crazy, and that's important. But at a certain point, we also have to ask, what is the intervention? How good are we at intervening? Um, have we identified the right solution? Because we can identify problems like crazy, and we're very good at it and doing it efficiently and and quickly. I'm so glad you mentioned trust, because I think especially, you know, certainly the problems that we're talking about here affect people from all walks of life, all sorts of communities. But certainly some communities have more reason to trust or mistrust healthcare systems than others. Um, so can you maybe talk a tiny bit about the role that trust plays in these kinds of systems? Yes. A lot of the challenges we face in medicine are challenges where there's a disconnect between what a provider says or what a health system says or a guideline says and what a patient actually does. And there's so many efforts to try to reconcile those. They don't often go well. So, you know, we're told to make sure a patient takes their statin or make sure that they do their mammogram and so on. And at one level, it's hard to explain. Why wouldn't you want to be screened for cancer? Why wouldn't you want to be healthier in this way and that way? But a lot of it does come down to the fact that we have to kind of be modest about the history of healthcare and medicine. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that the Tuskegee syphilis study happened where black men were essentially allowed to have syphilis into uh, the extremes of the disease, even though it was treatable, simply to watch what would happen with somebody with untreated syphilis. And so it's not very difficult to understand why someone might be skeptical about a provider who looks different from them. Uh, I had an experience recently of a patient I simply couldn't connect with, and it was obvious and palpable in the room. Uh, he would answer my questions with like very brief answers, yes or no, and not really expound. And we clearly had a class divide. We had a race divide. We had a number of divides. Ultimately, you know, I never really connected with him well. He'd end up in the emergency room a lot with headaches and chest pain, uh, from not taking his hypertension medications, he ended up meeting someone in his neighborhood uh, who was a health advocate, had a shared incarceration experience with him. They developed a relationship, and over time, 
in developing that trusting relationship, the patient ultimately admitted that he was basically functionally illiterate, something that, you know, was obviously uh, damaging to someone's pride, and that he was terrified of taking the medications wrong. And, um, you know, that that advocate uh, made two pillboxes for him, uh, one with a sun picture and one with a moon picture. And he's been able to take his medicines properly ever since. But clearly, they had a relationship that I couldn't establish well. Oh, that's so ingenious. I love the idea of you know, finding such a practical way to help somebody. But as you say, it wouldn't have been possible without having that shared background and community and, and understanding. Um, one of the other problems that you discuss in the piece uh, with these screen and refer systems is that um, they simply don't seem to work, right? What does the research tell us about how effective they are? That's the irony. They sound really good in theory. Why not have a centralized system that quickly gets people their social needs addressed? I would love that. You know, unfortunately, in medicine, we often find out that things that should work in theory don't, and we have a pretty rigorous standard of randomized control trials to show when something does or doesn't work. And unfortunately, the trials on these systems have been null. Uh, we find that a majority in many of the trials of people given the referral aren't actually interested in them and don't actually follow through on the referral. Uh, and unfortunately, in some cases, there's some evidence of increased depression and a few other side effects of doing it this way. Uh, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, there are some alternatives kind of alluding to that story I told you, a much slower a uh, more personable and more intensive approach of getting to know your patient does appear to have more effectiveness on on uh, health outcomes and actually on healthcare costs as well. One thing that you wrote in your piece is that the problem is that when people constantly get referred to support that ends up not actually supporting them, that ends up making them feel pretty crummy. Uh, so it is that something that we're seeing, that people are just sort of being over-referred? Sometimes over-screened and uh, referred to what's called the bridge to nowhere. In other words, if you don't have enough housing and you're constantly asked, are you homeless, and go put yourself on the housing list, it's just kind of, you know, beating you down. And some studies at Boston University Medical Center um, where they've done a number of, of these uh, evaluations suggest increases in depression, fairly significant ones in the context of this bridge to nowhere problem. So when a, a large health system gets funding to implement this software system and instead uh, the local housing authority or the food bank or these other referrals don't receive that, uh, this dysynchrony kind of is made worse for patients caught in the middle. You know, and is there any way to, to build the other side of that bridge? Um, you know, if you were had the power um, in any hospital system to make these systems more useful in terms of the resources available for patients to access, um, what might that look like, do you think? There's a few examples of this out there, but it took a deviation from the sort of standard rapid screen and refer approach. So there's been a few hospital systems that have made pretty deep investments, for example, in housing patients who are chronically homeless, literally going as far as to help fund and build the housing. 
you might ask what was in it for them. Some of these are nonprofit systems. Some of them are for-profit systems. But in fact, some of the healthcare costs associated, for example, with homelessness are so extreme that it's net, net more cost effective to simply build the housing than to house someone effectively in a rather expensive hospital bed or ER bed. Uh, And increasingly, our health systems are under so-called value-based agreements. That is, they're not just paid for the more tests and the more surgeries they do, although many are, but they're actually paid relative to how well they can keep a group of patients healthy. And so the health metrics are ultimately starting to align a little bit more with how these systems are funded. And in that ballgame, a lot changes. Now, uh, you're not actually incentivized uh, by how sick a patient might be and uh, the more hospitalizations they get, but actually by keeping them out of the hospital and healthy. Now, to get back to your earlier point about storytellings, one of the things that you advocate is this idea of a narrative approach. So what exactly is a narrative approach in primary care or any kind of health care? Yeah, the narrative approach is almost silly to state because it's kind of the fundamental of our field and the oldest approach to medicine. Uh, I mean, in many ways, even if we had nothing effective to offer in medicine, at least we had our ear and our time. And the narrative approach is simply saying, uh, maybe look away from your screen for a minute and stop typing for a minute and just listen and be there with the patient. There are plenty of patients for whom you know, we, we will not be able to resolve all of their pain. We won't be able to fix all of the social needs given the nature of our systems. And we may not be able to cure their disease, but at least we can accompany the patient. At least we can be there as another human. Uh, of course, it's highly inefficient. Uh, it takes time. And so the incentives are not aligned with it, but it sort of uh, leaves us with being physicians as uh, something more than just diagnosing, treating, and ordering tests and medications. And as you write, there are ways to do that, right, within the system that we do have, at least with some changes, such as by bringing in community health workers or, I don't know, maybe using artificial intelligence to record things. You know, what are some of the ways do you think we could build in that narrative approach? You know, one of the oldest ways is to not simply have a doctor-patient relationship, but also have additional members of the community. As you mentioned, a community health worker. Certainly, uh, community health workers did a lot during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, In the city and where I live, uh, community health workers were often the principal people who went out and did contact tracing, um, assisted families where the kids were home from school and the parents were sick with COVID, and so somebody needed to fill in the gap. It's this space between the traditional healthcare system we have and the places where people actually live, work, and play, uh, which is, of course, where their health matters most. And bridging that divide, being an interpreter, um, being someone who can help advocate for a patient who may not be in a position to do so is a critical role. Ironically, one of the arguments against community health workers is, is funding. You know, how could you possibly pay for this additional service? Isn't healthcare expensive already? But as a compared to paying for expensive software implementations, the community health worker programs actually seem to more than pay for themselves in averted illness and subsequent emergency room and hospitalization costs. And that's a way for the money to actually go back to the community, right? Where it can continue to circulate rather than maybe going to some 
large tech company located very far away. So that seems to be sort of a nice effect of it as well. Indeed, it's a good employment mechanism, especially if you're hiring from the neighborhoods uh, that patients come from and where people are often sickest. So you're valuing not just the formal education of healthcare providers, but also the lived experience of people in the community that may have a lot of intangible knowledge and can now just be operationalized rather than um, whittled away or assumed to not exist. Right. I mean, in even just then in terms of the actual screening, then that allows for screening to not only be an ongoing process, but one that's really deeply rooted in the community in which it's happening, right? Instead of it being a checklist that was written by, I don't know, some executives from the healthcare system and whatever platform they're using, it's written by the people who sort of work with the patients day in and day out, which seems really valuable since health concerns can vary so much from location to location. Indeed, the very way we phrase questions is also very indicative of and very influential on how people will answer. And so uh, sometimes, certainly, we can do things like language translation, but it's not always the words that we choose, uh, but also the way that we say it, the uh, context in which it's asked, and the a level of trust, frankly, that is behind the question that determines how people are going to answer and whether they're going to do something uh, based on what we find out. Yeah. And trust isn't just, I would imagine, will you protect my information? It's also, are you going to be judgmental if I tell you something that I think you don't want to hear? Certainly the case. I mean, if you look, for example, at many of the questions um, we have in medicine, uh, they immediately direct us to refer to the patient as a he or she. So right away, um, a trans patient, let's say, knows which side you're on, and it's not going to be on their side necessarily if you're starting to phrase a question in one of the standard ways that's typical in our screening instruments. That's just one example, but it's uh, indicative of sort of the assumptions that are hard to get rid of when we have implicit bias in our system. How have your feelings about this as a process changed, right? Like when you first heard about this system, is this something that you saw right away there were going to be holes in? Or is it something that you had to kind of learn as you went that, wow, this is just really not working for us? You know, I have to say that I was very wrong about these initiatives um, when they first came out. I was excited. I'm an East Coast trained tie wearing physician who has learned to practice medicine with checklists. The idea is we don't make a mistake if we use checklists. Uh, If we um, constantly and rigorously have controls of ourselves, if we're measuring uh, everything we do through metrics. My PhD is in biostatistics, so it's hard for me to extract myself from that training. But ultimately, seeing the impact on patients forced me to have a bit of correction that um, we're kind of patting ourselves on the back on the healthcare system side for addressing people's social needs. But we're assuming that doing a screening and a rapid referral and printing out a worksheet or filling out an application form is actually addressing the social need. And when we actually follow through, putting my statistics hat on again, when you actually follow through the full funnel and see was the need actually resolved, the remarkably low proportions of the needs resolved through this mechanism 
really leave one wondering, uh, what assumptions did we make wrong? And uh, did we go too quickly to assume that the solution was right in front of us and it was the way of solving that we typically do in medicine, which is make it as fast as possible to prescribe the answer? And has that realization um, sort of affected the way that you attempt to connect with your patients at all? Definitely. As I get older, as a physician, I get slower. Um, Part of that is the body, but part of it is also realizing that uh, rather than racing through the checklist, it gives me a lot more insight if I just sit for a moment, not have my screen on, and actually listen. And usually people are telling us a lot between the lines. Uh, So it may take more time in order to address the problem, but often there's a more deep-seated problem. Uh, Last week, I had a patient who had been to many, many specialists, uh, gastroenterologists. She'd had endoscopies, colonoscopies, CT scans, and so on for chronic abdominal pain. Uh, She usually saw these specialists for short periods, as often is the case, and they couldn't find anything, so she was sent back to me as the primary care doctor. We finally had had a relationship that was long enough um, for her to reveal that, you know, the abdominal pain corresponds a lot to when she's being abused by her boyfriend. And that's not to say she doesn't have real pain. There's something going on in there. But there's a deeper manifestation, a deeper uh, situation going on that a colonoscopy and a CT scan isn't going to find. And it took that relationship and that time for that to come out. And uh, we weren't going to solve this one with uh, any additional testing. Uh, It was really going to have to take something else. And so those kinds of relationship-based revelations are really common in primary care and is one of the reasons why, um, you know, I love the profession, but it's also very difficult to simply quantify in, in a rapid checklist. Well, Sanjay Basu, thank you so much for joining us today. It was wonderful talking with you about this. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners, so let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast and columns should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. Until next time, please don't keep your opinions to yourself.